Welcome to Lincoln Log, where we speak with leading historians and other officials about their stories, research, and wisdom. Expand your knowledge and indulge your curiosity here on Lincoln Log. This podcast is produced by the Abraham Lincoln Association, aiding and promoting Abraham Lincoln's life and legacy. Founded in 1908, the ALA remains the nation's oldest and largest Lincoln organization. Learn more at abrahamlincolnassociation.org. Greetings. I am your host, Joshua Claiborne, and I am pleased to welcome Dr. Lucas Morell to the Lincoln Log podcast. He is professor of politics and head of the politics department at Washington and Lee University, where he teaches courses on American government, political philosophy, Abraham Lincoln, and race inequality. Dr. Morell's many publications include Lincoln's Sacred Effort, Defining Religion's Role in American Self-Government, published in 2000, and the just-released Lincoln and the American Founding from the concise Lincoln Library of the Southern Illinois University Press. In addition to his teaching and writing, Dr. Morell is past president and chairman of the board of the Abraham Lincoln Institute, where he remains on the board of directors, and he also serves on the U.S. Semi-Quincentennial Commission, which will plan activities to commemorate the founding of the United States of America. Dr. Morell, thank you for joining us for the podcast. Thanks for the invitation. Glad to be here. Um, you're a multifaceted expert, I feel. Uh, you're a political scientist, but you also have your hands in many other related fields, including uh, history and philosophy. So I'd like to begin with a question that somewhat touches on all of these areas. Aristotle uh, says that you don't have civil wars and revolutions unless there's a disagreement about the meaning of justice. During the American Civil War, there was, of course, a fundamental disagreement over justice and what justice the federal government owes its citizens. Do we have the seeds, if not the full fruit, of such a fundamental disagreement today? Yeah, that's a huge question. And But I'll have to begin by thanking you for uh, bringing up Aristotle in a Lincoln podcast. So that's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> uh, I think in always uh, political, we, we got to come back to Aristotle to get our bearings, even if we disagree with him. Uh, I think he was fundamentally correct that uh, you don't get civil wars without factions. And factions aren't really about good versus evil. Uh, it's, it's easy to say, well, our guys are the good guys and the enemy are bad guys. Um, when the enemy is, uh, as Lincoln put it, members of our own household, that's a pretty difficult uh, thing to say. What you really have is, as you put it, a fundamental divide um, over the, the meaning of justice. Uh, and by that, just crudely put, uh, what, what do we deserve from our government? Uh, some folks have described our current political climate in the United States and maybe even social cultural climate as a cold civil war. And by that, I think they suggest, and I agree with this, that we are increasingly divided in terms of what it is that we believe our governments uh, exist to do, what should it provide and what should it stay out of. Uh, and to that extent, we do have a, a disagreement over the meaning of justice. Uh, what is it that each citizen of this um, uh, putative United States deserves from its government. And so, yeah, I think uh, I agree with Aristotle in terms of um, this observation today that uh, we use the word that we're, we're increasingly polarized. And, and by that, I don't think we simply mean uh, people are sheltering um, down into Republican or Democrat or conservative or liberal. Uh, we really are sheltering down into a, a fundamental cultural um, opposition. And so what it is that we believe about God, about nature, 
about humanity. Yeah, I think uh, that uh, all of these things uh, continue to, um, uh, yeah, divide us. We have uh, increasingly fundamental differences over how we understand those major uh, uh, topics and therefore how we understand ourselves and our relationship to our government. Hmm. Uh, in some prior speeches and interviews, you've made an interesting distinction, I think, between Lincoln's views on slavery and bondage and then Lincoln's views on race, possibly suggesting even that Lincoln opposed slavery but did not necessarily take the same amount of steps or have the same passion to oppose racism. Mm -hmm. um, could you elaborate on that distinction? Yeah, and that's a, a somewhat subtle distinction. We, we would think, linking, uh, thinking back to the Civil War era, the antebellum era, or even Reconstruction, and what happened after uh, Reconstruction, uh, that these things would be synonymous, that Lincoln's opposition to slavery uh, was equivalent to his opposition to uh, racism and, and, and uh, racial bigotry. Um, the difference I see is that uh, has everything to do with context and circumstances and the situation that he faced especially politically. When you face situations politically, that means you have to face them with an eye towards public opinion, an opinion that you did not make, <laughs> but in a government by consent of the government, an opinion you have uh, every reason, uh, and even justice requires that you uh, give it due attention. And one of the great things we learn about Lincoln is the care with which he thought we needed to cultivate sound public opinion. And for him, that meant he had to begin any um, thoughtful orator, and here we could go back to Aristotle's rhetoric, any thoughtful orator has to think about uh, um, what he would call in the Greek pathos. In other words, the emotions and even the opinions and prejudices, the received opinions of those uh, to whom you direct your speeches and words. And so when it came to slavery, Lincoln thought that uh, slavery, quote, was the great behemoth of danger end quote, to the American Republic, that the continued existence of slavery uh, made it harder, not easier, for freedom to thrive in the United States. Um, as for racism, that was a, a tougher uh, animal uh, uh, to deal with, a tougher beast to deal with, uh, precisely because so many people in the United States had grown up uh, in a you know, pervasive racially prejudiced environment. So even in a free state like Illinois, um, you had uh, not uniform bigotry, but it was, it was pretty pervasive, so pervasive that Stephen Douglas, of course, could bank on that in his debates against Lincoln in 1858 and just categorically state this country was based on the white basis. He was like the George Wallace of his day. Even though he wasn't defending slavery, he was defending white supremacy categorically. White base, he said it was based on, uh, 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 it was on the white basis, written by whites for whites, and forever. So it's like not segregation today, tomorrow, and forever. It was white supremacy today, tomorrow, and forever. Uh, Illinois, I mean, the context is huge here. In, in Illinois, in the, by the mid to late, I think by the mid 1850s, they had already banned the immigration of blacks into the state. Mm -hmm. If you were a black person, you could not serve in the militia, you could not vote, you could not serve on a jury where a white person was a defendant. Uh, it was almost as if Illinois was competing against other free states like Indiana to see who could be more white supremacist than, uh, mm -hmm. than, than the other guy. And so that's the world, which is hard for us to enter into. And I do this with my students. 
Um, and the only way to do this is to get them to read what other people besides Lincoln were actually saying about black people. Right. Uh, but that's the world that, that Lincoln was operating in. And if he wanted to uh, uh, achieve any success with regards to the, what should be done, for example, about slavery, he had to take into account that he was working with uh, a vast majority of a population that could care less about black people. And so for that reason, he was doing what he could to acknowledge that existing racism, but to get them, if not to take two steps forward, at least one step forward with regards to that bigotry and to show them why it was in, even in their own interest to do the right thing by black people. But the fundamental thing he had to do was to get them to think correctly about slavery mm -hmm. uh, rather than to say, okay, tomorrow you have to um, devote your every waking hour to anti-racism as we call it today. Right. That's an excellent answer. Um, I guess to take another step into how that uh, perspective played out on policy, uh, let's talk a little bit about colonization. Many sure. listeners will on the podcast will know Lincoln's relationship with that policy, but just to set the stage, Lincoln was a longstanding supporter of black colonization, which was the relocation of black Americans abroad. Of course, this is, as we know, how the African country of Liberia ultimately formed. According to Lincoln's secretaries, Nicolay and Hay, he supported colonization all the way until he issued the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863. Why did he support it for so long? And uh, is it fair to say that supporting colonization makes him a racist? Yeah, two questions. Make sure I answer both of those. Okay, they're important. okay especially that second one. Don't let me uh, glide, <laughs> me evade that question. Um, on the first point, why did he support colonization for so long? And you are right um, that he did. Uh, he was a devoted follower of Henry Clay, who was the Whig of Whigs in uh, um, antebellum America. Uh, uh, Lincoln was a supporter of Clay because of the American system, because his uh, uh, steadfast support of government uh, provision, both at the state and federal level for infrastructure and the sorts of things that create what Lincoln believed would be an equal uh, and diverse playing field for every human being on American soil who was, uh, should be then be allowed the opportunity to, as he put it, a fair chance to develop their talents. And so if you didn't like being a farmer, which most people were farmers uh, back then, and especially on the frontier, he liked the fact that if you pr produce roads, dredge rivers, build bridges, you allow people to try to develop their talents in other ways and get their products to market. And it would also be a way, as Clay taught him, to unite the country by in, uh, interconnecting them or connecting them uh, more intimately. So on the colonization questions, um, Lincoln imbibed from Clay, but not thoughtlessly, but he imbibed from Clay the, under, the idea that because uh, color prejudice was so pervasive and it wasn't gonna go away anytime soon, uh, especially be, uh, as an undergirding of slavery, that uh, the best way to deal or to facilitate emancipation is to persuade the legal masters that don't worry if, if we require you and ask you, in fact, to consent to emancipate your slaves, they will not continue living in your midst. If we think back to Jefferson, who had a huge influence on Lincoln, even though Jefferson was a Democrat, uh, Jefferson argued that, um, uh, emancipation would have to be followed by expatriation, the two E's. In other words, you had to remove them. Uh, that's actually a wrong way to put it. You, you'd have to 
uh, facilitate their exiting of the states uh, wherein they resided. Otherwise, as, as Jefferson put it in the notes on the state of Virginia, 10,000 recollections on the part of the blacks would haunt them. In other words, what might be on the top of the to-do list of a newly freed slave, given what he experienced personally, what his family experienced, etc. odds are a just desire for vengeance probably be at the top of that to-do list. Now, it's a debatable proposition as to whether that really was on the top of their to-do list. I wish I could, I mean, if I was a grad student, I would pursue that question, answer that question. But at least at the time, they had examples of the Prosser Rebellion, the Haitian Revolution, and many others uh, that led them to think if we were to emancipate blacks, e e the enslaved blacks, immediately and en masse, uh, it is unlikely that it would be peaceful uh, emancipation. And so to convince slaveholders to do the right thing, we would persuade them by saying, don't worry, once we emancipate, we will also um, colonize them. Now for Lincoln, it was always voluntary. Even though they use the word deportation the way we do today, when we use it today, oh, you're going to be deported. We don't ask your permission. We say, you don't belong here. We're sending you out. Back then when Lincoln used it, and he used it in state papers, like his uh, State of the Union address to Congress every December, um, he used the word deportation prior to the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, January 1, 1863. But for him, it was always voluntary. Uh, and so uh, it, the, the basic principle there is if, if those doing the emancipating aren't afraid of freedom and a dagger, as Jefferson put it to, I think, Adams or Madison, this is what would happen. We'd give them freedom and a dagger. They would come after us. If we weren't worried about self-preservation, it would be more likely that we would emancipate. And Edward Coles is a great example from Virginia. Uh, he knew Madison and Jefferson well, and he moved to the territory of Illinois <laughs> with his slaves and set them up on their own farms. And he became a leader of the anti-slavery movement in the formation of their constitution. And I think the first or second governor of Illinois. That's a very tall order. Uh, that's a very uh, big ask for people who grew up with the institution of slavery. I'm not justifying it. Of course, slavery is on its face unjust. Uh, it's the very thing we fought against in, in when we declared independence. We, uh, a serious royal we there, uh, when, the, when the white uh, majority population wanted to uh, uh, throw off Mother England, they didn't want to be enslaved by Mother England. Mm -hmm. The very same reason we had in the Declaration of Independence is the same reason for any enslaved, uh, any of the enslaved in America. So. Uh, colonization, Lincoln thought this is the most prudent way to entice slave owners to get rid of their slaves. And because remember, in a federal system, Lincoln, as an Illinois citizen, had no authority over a Kentucky citizen with regards to that citizen's slaves. Right. His good friend, Joshua Speed, probably the closest person Lincoln ever uh, knew in his life, uh, lived with him in Illinois for a while, and then Speed goes back to Kentucky and becomes a slave owner. And these, these, these gut-wrenching letters that Lincoln writes to, uh, to Speed in 1855, where he says, you don't know, you don't appreciate how we, cru we of the North crucify our feelings, but we bite our lip and we abide by the Constitution. And the Constitution doesn't allow citizens mm -hmm. of one state to tell citizens of another state what to do with their legal property. And so Lincoln is trying to come up with ways in words, arguments, rhetoric, to persuade folks who have the legal authority to do the right thing why they should do it and why it won't hurt them. Now your second question, can you repeat it so that people can remember? Sure, sure. So, so Lincoln clearly supported black colonization. 
does that make him a racist? And I guess to set that up, is would it be fair to say um, he doesn't believe blacks are inferior to whites, but rather society at large are not going to accept blacks, and so therefore this is our only alternative. It may not be reflective of Lincoln's own personal views, but just right. the reality of what society, where society is. Yeah, and that reality he put quite crudely and starkly, and Frederick Douglass excoriated Lincoln for this in the press when he read about it. Douglass was not invited to this inf infamous meeting, this notorious meeting Lincoln had with um, some leading uh, black, um, uh, well, some black leaders in the D.C. and Maryland area. He, he invited them to the White House to try to persuade them in July of 1862 to start a movement towards colonization. He doesn't tell him, of course, that he already has an Emancipation Proclamation drafted in his pocket, uh, but he does. And so he's trying, and he makes sure that there's a reporter present. And so he is trying to shape, cultivate public opinion to the reception of emancipation by, and during a time of war, by cultivating a move, and it would have to be among blacks and black leaders, uh, uh, percolating it, its way down into the black community, uh, cultivating a move and an openness towards the very thing that most black Americans do not want to do. As bad as America is, they think their chances for making good on their ambitions, talents, and freedom, their best chances are in the nation of their birth. For generations, they had lived there, lived in America. They don't think uh, that they're going to make it in Liberia, let alone, uh, or, or Central or South America, which was the more practical solution, let alone Liberia, which even Lincoln knew as early as 1854 was uh, a crazy maker. That was a, mm -hmm. a disaster. He was never serious about colonizing blacks to uh, West Africa. So does that make him a racist? No. What it makes him is, is a very s a sound and prudent politician. As president of the United States in 1862, as he prepares the nation through these newspaper reports uh, and somewhat through speeches to receive emancipation, which from our modern sense, we wouldn't think that's controversial, but it was hugely controversial at the time. In fact, Republicans lost in fall elections in the North as a result of emancipation. At any rate, to prepare them for that, he tries to, he speaks frankly to these black leaders and he says, look, uh, it's not just about what you deserve. It's about what you are going to get if you continue in this country. And he says, even in the freest state in the United States, you are not the full equal of a white citizen. That's not Lincoln's opinion. That's a fact that he presents to them. And he says, why would you want to stick around where people don't like you? He doesn't blame it on them. He blames right. it on whites. It is, this is a reflection of white prejudice, not black right. inferiority. Lincoln never, and I mean like zero, not like zero, how about zero, never says that blacks are inferior by nature, never. The only thing he ever says categorically as a difference between blacks and whites is their color. And what do you give up there? <laughs> I don't think he gives up anything. And so it is not, in my opinion, a reflection of his racism. And in fact, if he thought blacks were naturally inferior, why would you promote colonization? Colonization would be a disaster for the blacks. Colonization, and here he agrees with Clay, colonization precisely, and you can be a colonizationist for, for racist reasons. I'm not saying you can't. But both Clay and Lincoln argued for colonization precisely because they thought blacks were capable of self-government, were capable of exercising freedom, were capable of uh, existing and thriving under a regime of self-government. And so it's actually a praise of blacks, not a condemnation to say, 
you need to leave this country. It actually thinks, it actually makes the case that um, it, it, the premise is we think you can thrive if you're handling things on your own. We just don't think it would happen here. What would happen would be a race war. And even the greatest foreign observer of America, Alexis de Tocqueville in the 30s and 40s said as much. He, Madison, Jefferson, feared a race war if you had mass emancipation of, uh, immediate and mass emancipation of blacks. Well, I'd, I'd like to unpack a couple of Lincoln's more controversial quotations, and I think um, you've really set the stage for the answer and putting those in proper context, but just to address them directly. Um, in one of Lincoln's debates with Stephen Douglas, he says, I am not nor ever have been in favor of bringing about in any way the social and political equality of the white and black races. I am not nor have ever, have ever been in favor of making voters or jurors of Negroes, the term at the time, nor right. of qualifying them to hold office, nor to intermarry with white people. And I will say in addition to this, that there is a physical difference between the white and black races, which I believe will forever forbid the two races from living together on terms of social and political equality. And inasmuch as they cannot so live, while they do remain together, there must be a position of superior and inferior. And I, there as much as- If there must. Yes, and are we correct, yes. And if there must be- If there must, that's huge, go ahead. Yes. Um, must be a position of superior and inferior, and I, as much as any other man, am in favor of having the superior position assigned to the white race. Uh, does this make him a white racist as well? So I, I think we know the right. answer, but go ahead and tee it up for our listeners. So remember, he says, there is a physical difference. Why am I pointing to the color of my skin? There's your physical difference. He's not saying that they are naturally inferior. Notice even the word he chooses to use difference. It's like saying there's a difference between vanilla, uh, vanilla, chocolate, and strawberry. Okay. This arbitrary characteristic or kink or curly hair, uh, brown eyes versus blue, right? These are physical differences. The question is, are they, are there differences that should make a political difference? And of course the argument of the declaration is no, these are mm -hmm. arbitrary, superficial on the surface characteristics that are yes, different. And notice what Lincoln is doing. He is on the, he's trying to touch base with a prejudiced voter, a prejudiced voting population. Remember, the, in Illinois, he is not currying favor with blacks because not a one of them can vote. Mm -hmm. So what Lincoln is doing is he is stating his record. He says, you, I'm going to say right now, I have never been, nor am I, it is a campaign to be elected or appointed senator from Illinois, I've never been in favor of voting for them, promoting their social... Uh, political and civil equality. Uh, that's just a matter of the record. He does, and but the the point of saying all that. Notice ne what he never mentions what he would be in favor of in the future. And so what he's trying to show a um, a bigoted population is, I grew up among you, and know that that prejudice is out there. And to this date, he served four straight terms, 1834 to 1842, in the state legislature. I was never, I never spearheaded racial equality. That's true. Why didn't he do that? I would, I surmise that he didn't do it because there wasn't sufficient opinion to support that, that there were, if you will, bigger fish to fry at that time. Mm -hmm. And had Lincoln come out like a John Brown or a William Lloyd Garrison in favor of absolute equality across the board, he would not have been elected. And ha had he been elected, he would have been constantly outvoted. Uh, the great example that the great Michael Burlingame brings up all the time, and, and he should, is in 1837, Lincoln is the lone supporter that joined Daniel Stone. 
who wasn't up for reelection in support of a, a, a petition in the state house that condemned abolition. That petition gained two votes of sitting legislators. Daniel Stone, who loses nothing because he's not up for re-election. Lincoln is the only one, and he does get re-elected, but he sticks his neck out at that time on behalf of at least the goal of abolition. He didn't like the rhetoric. He thought that their means undermined their ends, but at least he signed, he was a co-signer of a petition that uh, condemned slavery. If I said condemned abolition, that was wrong. He condemns abolition rhetoric, but he condemned slavery. They could only get two people to sign it, Dan Stone and Abraham Lincoln. And so Lincoln is on record doing that, yes, in the midst of all these other things that he is not doing, because at that time, well, let's put it this way. If you can't even get Northerners to shore up their convictions that all men are created equal, which is to say that they both blacks and whites possess by the, by the endowment of God, natural rights. Right. It's not even, I mean, it is a fool's errand to, 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 instead of shoring that up, to go ahead and try to get votes for blacks in, in Illinois. And blacks are, are you know, are, are a very small portion of the population. So that isn't the major issue. And it certainly isn't the major issue when he makes the most controversial thing, uh, claims that, as you quoted, in the 1850s, the biggest issue is not the vote for black people. The biggest issue is, are we going to believe the Declaration of Independence? Are we going to believe that all human beings are at least naturally endowed with the same rights? And when that conviction was becoming shaky, Lincoln thought in his campaign against Stephen Douglas in 58 and in 60, when he campaigns for president, the number one threat to the future of freedom in the United States was not, an, uh, was not slavery, but was an increasing moral indifference on the part of white free northerners with regards to the fate of blacks in the federal territories, which is to say the expansion of slavery. So what Lincoln thought is, that's the thing we've got to do. I don't have to convince whites that slavery is wrong. They're mm -hmm. already there. I have to convince them that the expansion of slavery, even though it's not coming to Illinois today or tomorrow, the expansion of slavery into Kansas or Nebraska or Oregon, right? Or Utah or New Mexico, right? That, will ultimately threaten freedom in the free states. And so for him, he had to persuade them that you have to at least agree. I'm not asking you to give blacks the vote, but you have to agree. Surely you agree. In your heart of heart, even Southern slave owners in their heart of hearts know that what they are doing is wrong. They let their little kids play with the kids of slaves, but they never let them anywhere around the kids of slave traders. Gee, I wonder why that is, right? right. <laughs> so what Lincoln is trying to do in the 50s, especially against Douglas, he says, Douglas is the enemy. His doctrine of local popular sovereignty, in other words, moral neutrality with regards to the question of slavery, as long as people vote on it, and it's only white people, as long as people vote on it, what they conclude, I don't care. Let the people decide. Famously, he made that argument. And Lincoln says, good grief, you've got to be the only person who doesn't have an opinion on slavery in the United States. So... Lincoln is trying to show how insidious that doctrine is. Let me conclude with this. For slavery to expand in the United States, notice what Lincoln is trying to show to the American people is, it's not that you have to persuade white people that slavery is good. For slavery to expand and then ultimately to infect all the states of the Union, all you have to persuade not white Northerners north of the Mason-Dixon line is not to care what happens to people who don't look like them somewhere else? 
Lincoln says, oh yes, you better care what happens in Kansas, Nebraska, Oregon. That is a national issue and therefore Congress does have, re have every authority and duty to deal with it, which is to say, to stop its spread. That was the issue and that was becoming more and more difficult to do with the passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act in 1854 and cemented by the Dred Scott opinion of 1857, which said Congress could not touch slavery mm -hmm. in the territories. There's your big fish to fry. There's your front burner issue. If you can do that, I believe Lincoln th thought that would be the building block to the next thing, which would eventually mean civil and political equality. Right. And I think proof that that he did have the the belief that he that we should get there, or at least if if you want to be even skeptical, say he had a change of heart. But I agree with you. He had he had that that goal all along was that he did eventually start to suggest voting rights for blacks, and that is what ultimately led John Wilkes Booth to assassinate him, and why Michael Burleson, yeah. who you referenced, says Lincoln is one of the first martyrs for black civil rights for that reason. Yeah, because um, that because it wasn't the Emancipation Proclamation that put John Wilkes Booth over the edge. It was the suggestion of black voting rights that, that ultimately did it. So yeah, Lincoln made that public in, in his, his what they call his last public speech. It wasn't literally his last public speech, but he made that speech that speech on was it April 9th or 11th, I think April 11th, where he says out loud what he had been saying privately in letters to, um, uh, for example, Michael Hahn, the newly elected mm -hmm. moderate, if you will, governor of Louisiana. He says you should give blacks, the, uh, intelligent blacks the vote, which we, Michael interprets that as literate. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and that you should uh, educate uh, blacks uh, in Louisiana. He had, he had uh, said that privately to that governor as well as to um, a, a general earlier in, in 1864. And so when he, it becomes public, like you say in April, John Wilkes, there, there's dispute over this report, but essentially John Wilkes said, uh, I'm going to, that means N-word citizenship, I'm going to run him through. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, you, you made a, a noble defense of Lincoln's controversial statements. Do you think the so-called cancel culture will still come for Lincoln, or do you think they Absolutely. will? Yeah. And, and he'll be seen as too racist, and so therefore calls will be made to start taking down his statues. There was one as you sure. know, a uh, statue already that's, that's been targeted, although it's not for Lincoln per se, but rather the perception of the freed slaves around him. In but Boston. In Boston. Do you, do you see that coming? And, and, and how, how could we respond to that if that's the wrong move? It's already here. It's not coming. It's already here. Um, uh, I'm sure we were, gonna, we were likely to get to Nicole Hannah-Jones' lead essay for the 1619 Project, um, but if not, I'll, I'll address it at least briefly now. Um, he is already under attack. Uh, and cancel culture um, will throw it. Will throw Lincoln on the pile um, on the on the funeral uh, uh, pyre as well. Um, fundamentally, because he's a defender of the founders. My book, Lincoln and the American Founding, is published just published a few days ago in anticipation of July Fourth. Yay! Um, my book is essentially a refutation a defense or a refutation of their attack on Lincoln and a defense of his honor and his honorable defense of the founding. They will come after Lincoln. Um, they don't even have to go after his racist remarks, what they perceive as racist. They will go after him because he loves the founding. He reveres the founders. And if you revere the founders, you're a racist. Uh, so he's a defender of America. He's a defender of what he called the spirit of 1776. That alone, is sufficient for, for this current, as you call it, cancel culture to go after Lincoln. They're going after anybody 
who is the product or a defender of um, the birth of the American nation, which I, persuaded by Lincoln, Gettysburg Address, date to not the formation of the Constitution, but the, the, the endorsement of independence on July 4th, mm. the rationale for independence on July 4th, 1776. So yeah, they're coming for Lincoln. What I like about Boston, I'm gonna say this, is in a way the cause of Boston may yet again become the cause of, of, of America. And I'm, I'm making an illusion that I'm sure some of your, your viewers uh, will catch. I mean, Washington called the cause of Boston the cause of Massachusetts, the cause of America, when it came time to uniting the colonies in their defense against British hegemony um, and despotism. I think the cause of Boston can replicate that in this way, not in their objective, but in their means. And right now, what means are as important as ends? What do I mean by that? How we go about deciding what to do about the folks we honor, and we do that principally, at least these days, or have done this, principally by putting statues up to them. How we go about making that decision and following through on that decision, I think is all important right now. Right now we are seeing the abdication of responsibility by local and even state authorities with regards to the vandalism and, and, and uh, destruction of public property, including monuments. Uh, you know, we, we know the Portland example, Seattle, and now in Boston though, the cause of Boston is this, they're talking. They're having conversation, and ultimately, I presume they're going to have disagreements, maybe even <gasps> debates and arguments about what should be done. That is the American way. That is what I mean by the cause of Boston. I disagree with the removal of that statue, which is an imitation of the, a copy of the statue that's in Lincoln Park, 10 blocks behind the Supreme Court, which has Lincoln with the Emancipation Proclamation curled up in uh, right hand, I think, and in his left hand, kind of a benediction over a crouching slave who has, whose manacled chains have been burst apart, and he's almost like a sprinter at the blocks, but he's crouching, and they don't like that. A kneeling slave, uh, in, freed slave, before a standing erect Lincoln. Even Douglas was overheard to have said that he did not like that posture. when He, uh, he didn't say it in his speech in, 1850, in 1876, but he mentioned it. To, to others that he didn't like that posture. Um, at least in Boston, they're not tearing it down, whether in broad daylight or in the thick of night, they are talking about, should we remove this somewhere else? Should it be located better? Is this appropriate for a day and age where we wanna see both white men and white and, and, and black men equal? And that means posture. Remember the, the Theodore Roosevelt statue, right? right. He's up on a horse. But you have, is it a Native American and a, a black man? Correct, right. On either side. Again, the white man is in a superior position. We can't have that. Um, what we're neglecting to understand is why that statue exists to begin with. The Lincoln statue, what's called the Emancipation, uh, it's called the Freedmen's Memorial, but the, the statue is called the Emancipation Group. The idea of that statue did not come from white people. It came from black people. Now, it is true a white man, Ball, um, uh, created that statue. Uh, but blacks wanted to show their gratitude to Lincoln in 1876, and the statue was entirely paid for by black people in, in Washington, D.C. Congress set apart the park, paid for the pedestal, and declared a, a, a D.C. holiday so that federal employees could attend. President Grant, members of the Supreme Court, Congress, 
and other federal officials were there. And um, it was Frederick Douglass that was the keynote speaker. Uh, one of his great and somewhat controversial speeches about what he says about Lincoln in there, both criticism and praise. Um, so I would think if they were to remove that statue because it doesn't represent the full flowering of freedom and equality of, of, of blacks vis-a-vis uh, -vis white, they would be misconstruing the purpose, the meaning of the statue, which was not to say, it wasn't a statue about equality. It was a statue about what their gratitude towards what Lincoln did. And that obviously is going to have to have slavery represented somehow, freedom represented somehow, and depicted in some sense, in terms of where Lincoln literally stood at that time, president of the United States, an official document in his hand, an emancipation proclamation, and a benedictory uh, wave of the hand. And where is the slave? When the slave is emancipated, of course he's not enjoying the full flowering of his freedom. And therefore the statue shouldn't depict that. The statue does, and also doesn't depict the two, you know, this flat, you know, expression on the face. It is a face, as I say, of a sprinter at the blocks, like, okay, you, what has been holding me back are these legal chains. Now watch what I can do. And it's at the beginning of what blacks in this country were going to set about doing. And, and to that extent, if we understand our history, I think we can understand appropriately the meaning of that statue. But the cause of Boston is deliberation and then decision and action. That's the way civilized, self-governed, uh, self i.e. self-controlled people do things in this country. The how is as important as the what. And not, not through vandalism, as you say. One thing that's kept me sort of I thought a compelling argument was that uh, when Lincoln visited Richmond in 1865, an elderly black man allegedly kneeled at his feet, at which point Lincoln told him to stand and that as a free man, he should kneel to no one. But you make a good yeah. distinction and a good point that, um, that I hadn't really considered that, that the, the, the freed black man in that statute isn't necessarily kneeling, but he's crouching and getting ready to stand towards equality. And so Absolutely. if anything, perhaps a, maybe a nice middle ground would be to, have another statute nearby that shows context in which somehow there's there's the full flowering of equality that we're we're trying to to, to achieve or something to that effect. Sure, if we want to tell our history through statues, yeah, let's erect another statue. Let's have a plaque. I don't know what the plaque uh, says um, mm -hmm. in in Boston. If it, it's the same thing that it says in D.C., it gives a history of the Western Sanitary Commission that actually uh, commissioned the statue mm -hmm. and organized the fundraising effort on behalf on behalf of blacks. Um, uh, I mean, there's only so much you can say on a plaque, right? Right, right. Uh, but uh, I think it would be helpful to have something that actually explains the symbolism of the manacles, the symbol, and who, you know, who the, the, the crouching slave actually was modeled after. A, a guy named Archer, who I believe was the last uh, fugitive slave that was apprehended, or I, I forget the actual details of that, uh, but it's easy uh, to look up. But they actually found uh, a, a, a person from history to model that uh, newly freed slave after. So if you had something that explained what's that rolled piece of paper that Lincoln has in his hand, what does this benedictory, what does the hand over the slave mean? Why should we not, it, why is it obvious that the slave is not kneeling before Lincoln? but crouching ready to spring into action. These are important things. These are, these are things that are worth paying attention to um, and things that we need to be careful about.
Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned the 1619 project and, and some would argue, I think that that gave rise to a lot of the, the renewed calls to take down so many of these historic statues and conversations about race. You know the history, but I think for the benefit of our listeners and, and, and viewers, the 1619 project is an ongoing project developed by the New York Times Magazine with a goal of re-examining the legacy of slavery and time for the 400th anniversary of the arrival of the first Africans in Virginia. And that project kicked off many essays on the history of different aspects of contemporary American life, um, which the most or all of the authors believe have their roots in slavery and its aftermath. And now there's even efforts to uh, adopt these essays in book form and school test books. And, and, and the originator of that project, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, was awarded the 2020 Pulitzer Prize. So it received praise from all the usual suspects, but it also um, received quite a bit of criticism. Um, uh, in fact, we've had Alan Gelzo on, the, on this program who, who offered pretty substantial criticism. Many other Civil War historians questioned um, how it depicted both the founding and then the Civil War itself. Could you summarize, um, I know you've penned one uh, fairly prominent column that was critical of it. You've offered some critical comments here. Could you summarize your complaints of the project as well? Yeah, it's tough to summarize my criticisms of a 7,000 plus word essay that my 4,000 plus word response was only the half of what I could have said that I didn't like about the essay. Deadlines are deadlines, right? Right. Um, in her essay, I call it the good, the bad, and the ugly. And it's unfortunate that the good was, in my opinion, eclipsed by the bad and the ugly. What was good about her essay? Her attempt to explain black contribution to America's social and political and economic development over time. Uh, this is indisputable, uh, that blacks, free and enslaved, contributed to the prosperity of this country, and it is not very well known. There are a number of people, I remember when the movie Glory came out in 1988-89, who did not know that blacks served in the Union Army. It took a Hollywood movie that wasn't a documentary, but pretty good, to the, good with the history, it took a movie to show people, wait, is that true? Did blacks actually serve in the Civil War? Yes. How about all the way back to the American Revolutionary War? How about every war that this country has fought in? Um, so her attempt to bring blacks back into public awareness as fundamental contributors to the prosperity of this country, that was good. Uh, and, and her story about her father, her not understanding why her father uh, I mean, of course, she's black, her family's black. Her father fought uh, uh, for, uh, in the United States Army, but was, of course, persecuted, discriminated against um, in various ways. She couldn't understand growing up why her father proudly flew an American flag. And it was only when she recognized what her father understood about black American history, more, per, more importantly put, blacks in American history, that she, re she realized, oh, I can be proud of my country the way my father is. Here's the problem with that. And then I'll get to the bad and the ugly. This is part of the bad. The problem with that was, for some strange reason, Nicole Hannah-Jones didn't think that she could be proud of this country unless she saw people who looked like her contributing to this country. Why shouldn't she be proud of Lincoln? Why couldn't she be proud of Washington? Why couldn't she be proud of a slaveholder like Jefferson? Not for the bad things he did, but for the monumental achievement that is the Declaration of Independence. That is something any black person, Hispanic person, any person of any color, race, ethnicity, or nation of origin should be proud of precisely because of its claim that all men, all men, all human beings are created equal. They're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. And among these are life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Anybody, especially any American, 
can claim that, as, as King put it, as a promissory note. Why do you have to find people who look like you? I think I'm not going to find very many Dominicans hanging out in Philadelphia or New York in the 1770s, but I can be proud of what they did on behalf of humanity and say that is just as equally applicable to me, even though nobody of my color was present and helped write and edit the document that became the Declaration of Independence. So the, the shortcoming of her praise of her, her ultimate praise of her father is I think that it teaches people today, well, you could only be proud of America if you discover that somebody back in our history actually helped make America what it is. You know, the greater achievement is, wow, even a slaveholder recognized that what he was saying out loud and putting on paper could be used by people who weren't present for their freedom, like uh, uh, Mumbet did in Massachusetts. Slavery was eradicated in Massachusetts because black slaves read or had read to them the Massachusetts Constitution that said all men are born free and equal. And they said, huh, let me check. Yes, last I checked, I'm a human being. Uh, I believe you guys said this. I didn't make it up. You said I was born free and equal. So where do I sign? Where do I get this? And a judge said, lo and behold, she's right. He's right. Let's do this. Um, that's an appropriate way of looking back in American history. Now, to get to the bad, she gives a very baldlerized, truncated uh, account of the American founding. It, apparently, she was not aware that James Madison actually was at the Constitutional Convention. I know that she was, but she studiously avoids mentioning him, mentioning um, uh, his contributions to the United States Constitution. She, she is woefully ignorant of all of the correspondence and speeches that indicated quite clearly that the founders understood that the nation they were establishing was contradictory to slavery, that they had obstacles to emancipation. She never mentions the obstacles. And so she, she, she renders a very narrow account, which is wrong and false to history precisely because of what it leaves out. Uh, of the founding. And that's the bad part of her essay. And then the ugly part, of course, is to take down the founding, what do you have to do? You have to take down the founder's greatest defender, and that's Abraham Lincoln. So she doubles down and essentially associates Lincoln with the racism of Justice Chief Justice Taney's Dred Scott opinion. She never mentions that Lincoln condemned that opinion excoriated Tawney's reading of the Declaration of Independence. And she didn't mention it in the same way she didn't mention that he was key to emancipation, key to winning a, the Civil War, key to the ratification of, uh, or the passage of the 13th Amendment in uh, the House. She leaves those things out and takes for granted that they occurred, 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment, takes for granted that the, that the Civil Rights Act of 64, the Voting Rights Act, of 65, takes for granted that Brown v. Board of Education, a unanimous opinion, she takes for granted so many landmark decisions and significant legislation that was owing to not blacks, but to whites. She takes for granted the white contribution to the same civil rights struggle that blacks for so long have been a part of. And to that extent, I think her rendering of history is more divisive and destructive of education. And it is, um, for me, 
uh, uh, fantastic in a way, like astonishing that this is actually already being included in K through 12 curriculum in the United States as if it was gospel, as mm -hmm. if these were new facts about the founding that we need uh, to present a more correct version of our history. Well, I'm impressed, um, my understanding for our readers, I'm impressed that you, despite all of your criticism, still assign that lead essay in many of your classes Ooh. to read to engage it head on. Um, because I think rather than just dismiss it, you, you make sure the students read it, that they read um, criticism of it and that they, they address this, this new narrative. So, so kudos to, to you for appreciating my, it that way. Yeah, I, I try to make my instruction a fair fight. When I teach Lincoln, it's clear I'm a fan of Lincoln. The title of the course is not Lincoln the politician, good or bad. No, the, the title of the course is Lincoln statesmanship. I have come to a considered conclusion about his contributions to our political development and survival. That said, we cannot understand Lincoln without understanding his opposition. And his opposition mm -hmm. came from several camps. And so we read Stephen Douglas. We read William Lloyd Garrison and Frederick Douglass. We read John C. Calhoun. We read Jefferson Davis. We read Yulee of Florida. We read the arguments for secession. We read the arguments for popular sovereignty. We read the arguments for abolition. And Lincoln was not an abolitionist. Anti-slavery, but not abolition. I try to make it a fair fight for my students so that they can at least see um, uh, the debates that actually went into the formation of this country. This is a country that was formed as the product of debate and deliberation and some violence, right? We had to fight in defense right. of the things we believed to be true. We had to be violent again. We had to use force to defend that when it was attacked, not by external foes, but internal ones, namely the Civil War. Uh, and the, the war for Southern uh, independence, as, as it were, the war of the rebellion, its official title. So I try to make it a fair fight. And so I know then that Nicola Hannah Jones, she's a MacArthur fellow uh, recipient. Now she's been, you know, her opinion and her project have been granted the good housekeeping seal of approval by the Pulitzer Center. So she is influential. Her, um, let's put it this way. I have barely more than 500 followers on Twitter. She's got over 350,000. Her voice speaks volumes mm -hmm. to the literati and public intellectuals and others, uh, professors, in fact, and other interested, engaged citizens. And, be and because of that, I have to engage that argument. I can't dismiss it. Uh, right. I, what I feel bad about is, uh, given the platform she had, I think her essay was a massive missed opportunity. And secondly, she has been notoriously absent from any forum that would subject her to serious criticism. The closest thing I have seen to it is when she went to uh, Henry Louis Gates, Skip Gates's um, Du Bois Center at Harvard, where he treated her with some, some ginger gloves. You could tell she was a little nervous at that one. Um, and he, he asked a, a, a few pointed questions, but it was really a, a receptive audience, shall we say. As far as I know, she has been unwilling to be on any uh, stage with, uh, with the, um, the 1690 project as the subject for debate yeah. and criticism. And on Twitter, um, good luck trying to get her to engage your arguments. Her, her pat answer, and I've heard her say this on stages, she has said that my opposition can't deal with the facts and my article is about facts. They can't dispute the facts. And I thought, hmm, let's talk about those facts. When you misquote Lincoln, when you're actually quoting Henry Clay. How about that fact? Yeah. Uh, and so I don't think that the facts are actually on display or on display in a fulsome way in her essay. And um, 
she's not been willing to engage with serious historians uh, about the, 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 the flaws, the major flaws and numerous flaws in her essay. Mm-hmm. Well, you've mentioned Lincoln's relationship with the founders uh, several times. It's the focus of your new book, and it's, it's really one of the things that really first hooked me into taking Lincoln seriously as a person. And, and, and just to set the stage, how, how, what I've always found attractive for our listeners is the Declaration certainly held that all men are created equal, but that was not true for the founders. It was only white landowning men who were created equal in, at that time. That wasn't necessarily that was just the reality that came to bear in the constitution. But Lincoln helped reorient our view and, and show through quote unquote, a new birth that the declaration is really an aspiration and that the constitution could be fixed at any given time. Um, but the declaration was a beacon and the aspiration we should strive to achieve that. In fact, all men are created equal and men of course being more of a euphemism for all people. Um, the great Harry Jaffa really did a lot for me personally to help illuminate my view of Lincoln on this subject. Um, and I think my understanding is you had the great fortune of studying under him. Um, yes. um, and I, as I noted that I think he helped so many modern scholars really take Lincoln seriously as a political thinker. How much were you influenced by him and how do you feel like his scholarship holds up today? Yeah, the easy one is the scholarship holds up very well today. Um, when he was alive, there were very few people who wanted to argue with Harry, even the people who agreed with him. Uh, <laughs> William, F, William F. Buckley famously said, if you think arguing against Jaffa is hard, try agreeing with him. <laughs> okay, uh, so I think his, his uh, uh, interpretation of Lincoln and his interpretation of the founding holds up quite well. I'm a product of the school of thought um, that came out of Harry Jaffa's tutelage under Leo Strauss, uh, but I was uh, shaped by Jaffa, if you will, principally through his students. And then I finally got to meet and take a, a course from Harry and, of course, read his stuff. That's the most important thing is to read, read his books right. uh, and his um, uh, letters and essays. Um, my principal teachers were William B. Allen when I was an engineering major, politics minor at Harvey Mudd College. And then I transferred to Claremont McKenna College where I met Charles Kessler, James Nichols, I think it was James Nichols's class on, on political rhetoric where I first read in a serious way the Lincoln-Douglas debates and that got me, that, that, that put the hook in me. And then I, I wrote an honors thesis with, with um, Charles Kessler on Lincoln's second inaugural address. So I wrote 70 pages, about four paragraphs uh, that eventually became, that, that grew into my dissertation at Claremont Graduate School. So his students um, were Bill Allen um, uh, and students through his words, Charles Kessler, uh, um, and others, and then I eventually got to take a, a course from, from Jaffa, but Jaffa's, you know, the, the, the Mount Everest and K2 of Jaffa's contributions to our understanding of politi American political theory are Crisis of the House Divided, and, um, which is an interpretation of the Lincoln-Douglas debates, and his New Birth of Freedom book. And so those two books, um, if you wanna take American history, and especially American history refracted through Lincoln's reading and understanding of it, you have to, deal with those books by Harry Jaffa. Right, right. So yeah, massively shaped by him. Um, and I, and uh, yeah, sad to see that when he, that when he finally passed, um, and he was fairly old by that point, but he had never gotten to write about the second inaugural address, which is my baby. So right. I've been able under his influence and folks like Bill Allen and Charles Kessler and Jim Nichols uh, to uh, apply my own mind to what I think Lincoln was doing in the second inaugural. And my, my proudest work next to this book uh, that, that I just produced is uh, what I have written and spoken about, about Lincoln's second inaugural, which I think is the most sublime 
political speech in American history. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about your new book, um, Lincoln and the American Founding from the Southern Illinois University Press. There you go. Nice oh, plug. Wow. I even have a copy of it. <laughs> uh, this book seeks to place Lincoln in the context of the founding. Um, I, th- I think suggesting he may even be the best teacher of the founding besides the founders themselves. Could you elaborate on the thesis of the book and what we can expect to learn from it? Yeah, um, I, I double down on the past. Uh, I not only think that Lincoln is worth reading, studying, and applying today, I not only think that Lincoln is germane and relevant, the most relevant voice to speak to the very controversies with regards to race uh, uh, and our civil order or disorder today. I think he's not only the most relevant, but he's most relevant precisely because of what he learned and drew and adapted from looking even further into our past, the American founding. Um, we, have a, we have a prejudice today somehow that we think that anything new has to be better than what came before. Uh, and so we have, a, we have a high cynicism towards anything that was written uh, by anybody older than we are. <laughs> uh, we don't have, we have this massive pride as opposed to a due humility for those that came before us. And what my teachers taught me, Bill Allen, Kessler, Jaffa, is um, what their teachers taught them, and particularly Leo Strauss's, especially when you're reading or considering the claims or arguments of somebody that you disagree with, all the more reason to slow down, to suspend your own judgment and consider them on their own terms and to understand them, as Strauss put it, as well as they understood themselves, which is to say, as well as they have spoken and especially written about the contents of their brain, namely their thoughts. And so I was taught that. I was, I was taught, I hope, and a, a fairly decent practitioner of careful, slow reading and consideration of arguments. Uh, and so what my book does is says, look at what Lincoln learned from the founding. If you get to the end of my book, you will see, oh, that's how he came up with the Gettysburg Address. That's how he came up with the Second Inaugural Address. That's how he came up with his, his great Dred Scott speech of 1857. That's how he came up with his magnum opus, that three-hour, two-and-a-half-hour speech at Peoria in 1854. Those could not have been written, but for a man whose mind was steeped in the founders, steeped in Washington. I've got a chapter on Lincoln and Washington especially steeped. The most formative influence on him was Jefferson's writings, not his politics. He was a Democrat. Lincoln was a Whig turned Republican, uh, but especially the Declaration of Independence. So the longest chapter by far is the De- Lincoln and the Declaration. If the Declaration spells out the aims of the American regime, the Constitution structures its means, its levers, its mechanisms for freedom. And so we look at Lincoln and the Constitution. You can't look at Lincoln and the Constitution or the Declaration for that matter and think about what? racial slavery. And so I have a chapter on Lincoln and slavery. And I show that Lincoln and slavery and his approach to that was not innovative per se, but categorically steeped in how the founders address address slavery. How does Lincoln understand the compromise? Is it hypocrisy or is it prudence? We work through that. And then I have a chapter on Lincoln and original intent. How is it that Americans in our generation, how was it that Americans in Lincoln's generation should understand the past. To what extent should we follow the past? If the past was wrong, it would be stupid to follow the past. How about we do something different, right? So if you're doing something well, if it ain't fixed, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So it's Lincoln's 
what, what Lincoln teaches us about how to understand the past that I think helps us know how we should approach him and how we should approach those he thought had something to teach us, those who he thought were good and right and noble, in spite of their own personal failings, imperfections, and in spite of the ways that they fell short of reaching the maximum that they, as you put it, were aspiring to in the Declaration. And I will have to say, I, I, I will slightly differ from your, your depiction of Jaffa's depiction of the Declaration. The Declaration is not simply aspirational. Mm. It's aspirational in terms of the practical security of the things that are not aspirational, that are in fact true, have always been true, true everywhere and throughout time, which is what? the natural possession mm. of the rights to life, liberty, and property of every human being. That was true on July 3rd, right. 1776. It was true, true in the before the common era, BC days. It was in 18, excuse me, it was in 1776 that a people for the first time in human history decided, huh, if this is true about all human beings, how ought we to govern ourselves? How ought we to create a safe environment for the exercise, not of the things government gives you, but of the things that government recognizes you already possess and wants to create this wall within which you can exercise those freedoms and reach is what I called earlier, the full flowering of that natural freedom, talent, and cultivated ability, education of a person. Mm -hmm. So it's both aspirational and also categorically a, a statement of the categorical things that are true about human beings, regardless of what, whatever government does. And this is Nicole Hannah-Jones, she's not only is she not a historian, she is nowhere near being a political theorist. And this she does not understand in her reading of the Declaration. She has not read slowly enough and therefore not read carefully enough what that document says that is not a lie, but actually fundamentally true, true. about who she is, her ancestors, mine, and yours. Mm -hmm. So, uh, uh, yes, aspirational in its implementation, but certainly true in, in that it is a true statement. All men are created yes. equal. Yes. 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 We like to end this podcast by asking guests this question. What is your favorite Lincoln story or anecdote? Uh, oh, my goodness. Um, too many. Uh, the, uh, what I'm here, here's my problem. I can think of two things right off the, the bat. One that is a more practical, practically relevant one and one that's more kind of profoundly reflective of the nature of our regime. Um, I'll, I'll leave us on a less heady note and let's go for the practical <laughs> one. Uh, on February 21st, I think it was, Lincoln was invited to a reception in the New Jersey State Senate. The New Jersey State, State Senate uh, was populated principally by Democrats. In other words, he could assume that the vast majority of his audience who were politicians in that room did not vote for him. They voted for Stephen Douglas. New Jersey was, I think, the only state that divided its electoral votes in 1860. Four went to Lincoln, three went to Stephen Douglas. And Lincoln knows going to this audience, not that he's stepping into the lion's mouth, that would have been Charleston, South Carolina, uh, but he was stepping into a, a, at least politically a hostile audience. But Lincoln is careful in his speech to conclude with this wonderful paragraph where he takes note of the fact that as the representative political man of the nation, I am not your man, he says to them. But by holding this reception for him as the constitutional president of the United States, Lincoln 
applauds them and says, I am more thankful for coming to this reception, this party you are holding for me, not because you agree with me, and in fact, especially because you disagree with me politically, but you acknowledge under the United States Constitution as a self-governing citizen, he is my president. Lincoln essentially was saying to them, you're not resisting. He is saying to them, none of you is saying, not my president. And he, he says this publicly, knowing it's going to be in the papers, knowing that in February, what is true about seven other states of the American Union, they have resisted. They have said in word and in deed, not my president. They have supposedly seceded. And Lincoln says, essentially, look at this example of my political opponents. They engaged in an election that nobody says was uh, illegal or unfair. I didn't cheat. According to the Constitution, I am the duly elected president of the United States. I have 180 electoral votes, a clear majority of the American people as represented through their states. And even though they lost, they understood and did something that any decent American, in fact, every decent American should do, which is respect the outcome of that election. Mm -hmm. They could go on and argue and complain to their, their neighbors and say, the next time we're going to vote for more Democrats. And the time after that, 1864, let's get a Democratic president. And Lincoln would say, God bless you. I hope you're not as successful as, as Republicans are, but you have every American right to do so. Until such time, though, you from this reception, I see you are anticipating when I am inaugurated on March 4th, 1861, you are going to respect the fact that I am the president of the United States, even though you did not vote for me. And for that, the nation could not have a better example of what it means to be an upstanding American citizen. In short, as I teach my students, republics, small r, require two things, good winners and good losers. Lincoln on February 22nd, 1861 was announcing to the nation, look at how these guys are being good losers. This is not optional. This is necessary for self-government to work. The opposite would be anarchy, which is what he goes on to say in March 4th, 1861. So where they have demonstrated that they are good losers, it is incumbent upon Lincoln when he assumes office on March 4th to show the country loyal and disloyal how he's going to be a good winner. And I leave you to judge whether his first inaugural address did that. Mm. Excellent thoughts and excellent, um, excellent anecdote and story to offer. Well, uh, Dr. Morrell, I really appreciate your time. Um, I'm gonna get uh, again plug for our listeners and uh, viewers, uh, Lincoln and the American Founding just out from Southern Illinois University Press. Um, I'm, I'm excited to receive my copy um, as well. So um, best of luck with the book and uh, okay. thanks again for joining us. Appreciate the invitation. Thanks a bunch, Joshua. Uh -huh. Thank you for listening to Lincoln Log. You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And if you like this podcast, please consider rating it on iTunes and leaving a review. This helps other people find the show.